Welcome to the Positive Impact Podcast, where we dive into the world of movers, shakers, and changemakers, creating a positive impact on the world. This is your host, Alexandra Black Pollock, and together we're going to tackle real issues, discovering how we can make the world a better place. As we mentioned last week, we are doing an entire month-long focus on different green initiatives. Today's guest has some really exciting initiatives that are across the entire U.S., and I am so excited to share them with you. This episode of the Positive Impact Podcast is brought to you by HelloFresh, delicious, healthy, and fresh meals delivered straight to your door. Enjoy cooking again with scrumptious and easy-to-prepare meals three nights a week. Visit PositiveImpactPodcast.com fresh for $40 off your first box. Ever wish that you got to enjoy scrumptious farm fresh veggies in school growing up? Okay, as a kid, broccoli and cauliflower might not have been high on your list, but today's guest is not only helping change up food options in schools across the nation, but also engaging students around farm fresh produce. Anupama Joshi, co-founder and director of National Farm to School Network, an organization enriching the connection communities have with fresh, healthy, and local produce, is joining us. Anupama, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Now, you guys do so many different incredible things. But first, I'm really curious, what got you interested in farm fresh produce? Um, I have a, I have a background in nutrition. So food and nutrition has always been an integral part of my life. And I've, I've worked on various nutrition and health and agriculture projects across the country and, um, across the world. Um, and when I came to the U S about 15 years back or so, um, really was struck by the, uh, growing epidemic of childhood obesity that we had in this country. And, um, fortunately got to meet a lot of uh, innovative folks that were trying to make a change in the lives of children and got engaged in in this farm to school approach where um, really we are trying to get kids to understand where their food comes from but through the kids are also trying to get to communities and to families so that um, people are aware of where their food comes from people are aware of healthy eating and are you know leading healthier lives, you know, into their adulthood. So that's how I got engaged in, in the farm to school work about, uh, about a, a little over a decade back. And I'm just delighted to see how it's grown over the years. I like how you say I got, connect, you know, I got involved with this. You're actually one of the co-founders. <laughs> so to say that you're involved is a little bit of an understatement. Well, not really. I mean, I think um, I, I really do feel that I, you know, I am involved in it. There are, there are, and there were um, several people that were doing this work across the country even before I, you know, had heard the word farm to school. So, what I, you know, what I did, I think, was um, that was important for the movement was that I brought people together through this national farm to school network and. Um, brought people together to share best practices, to learn from each other, and to have a common voice so that we could uh, influence policies and influence change across the country. And I think that's that's what I did. People were doing this work. Um, you know, I, I mean, I didn't dream it up. People were doing it um, all across the country. The idea that you just brought people together and you really had and basically kind of almost solidified the network, 
that's really giving you guys the legs to accomplish what you do across the entire nation. Absolutely. I mean, it's just fascinating to to think about the number of farm to school sites that I, I knew of. I could really count them on my hands, you know, a decade back or so. <laughs> and then it grew to 200 and then it grew to 400. And now we are talking about about 42,000 schools across the country, just a little bit under uh, 50% of the schools in the country are doing some kind of farm to school activity. So it's just amazing, amazing to see what can happen if people, you know, get together and work on, you know, work on a common, common goal that this could be something that is a norm and not an exception in the country. Talk about really going in and disrupting that process mainstay lunches. You're in 42 thousand different schools helping to create and facilitate farm to school options and connecting students with local farmers that's pretty impressive it is impressive and i mean i i will say that the impressive part of this equation really is the on the ground farmers on the ground food service directors on the ground teachers and educators that are you know, looking at their existing system, um, whether it's at the school level or at the farm level or, you know, within the classrooms and asking themselves a question as to whether it can be improved in any way. And they are the ones who really are the, the leaders and the pioneers, um, in my opinion, that are, that are the change makers. They are figuring out within their own community how change can happen. And it looks different in every community. And that's why I say that all of the farmers, food service directors, and educators across the country are the change makers because there isn't a one size fits all in this type of work. Uh, you have to figure out what works for your community and it might be slightly different from the next community, but you have to figure it out yourself. Nobody can give you you know, a silver bullet. Oh, I love that it's so local focused and really tailoring solutions to what's on the ground. I'm curious, can you give us some examples of what these lunches used to look like five to 10 years ago? Sure. Um, I would say it looked pretty brown to begin <laughs> with. That sounds and delicious. I know, I know. And, you know, I think just a couple, I mean, I think about a decade back there, they really, across the country, there were, there was a growing awareness of, of the growing, um, rising rates in childhood obesity. And there were several initiatives that were happening across the country, not just farm to school, I will say that, brought into play um, increasing the number of fruits and vegetables on the, on the cafeteria menu, um, looking at uh, buying you know, more sustainable products, um, antibiotic-free meats. Um, you know, so it's really not just about fruits and vegetables. It is about um, the quality of, of meals that we are providing through the school meal program. And it is, uh, it is not just lunch, but there's you know, a variety of meal programs that go into the school system. Um, there's lunch, there's breakfast, there's you know, summer meals, there's supper. There's a, a wide variety of opportunities for, for where um, the quality of, of food that is being served can, you know, can be changed. And so um, just to give you an example, um, from, from Portland, Oregon, where they, they, uh, they really changed their lunch tray. I mean, it was not just about, again, fruits and vegetables um, coming from, from the state of Oregon, but they also connected with you know, processors, so salsa makers and you know, chips makers and 
um, you know, bakeries across the across the state, and um, and and through that, were able to um, able to buy products that were not just fruits and vegetables, but other pieces of um, food that go onto the lunch tray, that were also procured from um, from within the state, and really saw a huge change in what kids were eating um, because they had a. Uh, they had a story. Each piece of food on the tray, you know, has a story to it. If you're buying from from a local farmer or a local processor, and telling that story to children, I think is part of the process of getting them excited about that food. Or if they've grown it in their own garden and then it's featured in the cafeteria, then you know that's just even better. You know, they, if they've grown it, they'll pretty much eat anything. Believe me, <laughs> if a child has grown kale or spinach or broccoli, you bet he or she is gonna eat it, and he or she is gonna push it to the to his or her friends too in the cafeteria and, and force them to eat it. <laughs> that's the best part. I grew this, so everyone at my table now has to have my awesome kale. You guys really are addressing both sides of that equation. And I do want to get to that education and that really getting your hands dirty part. But I do want to go back to this idea of changing the purchasing practices at school because those are what a lot of either your directors or your farmers are working on all across the U.S. How did you first kind of navigate that ability to get the schools to, you know, buy local or even look for different options? Right. Um, it's not easy. I, I will be totally honest about it. It's not easy because you, you are trying to change status quo. And in our, in our country, we've come such a long way in terms of um, you know, how food gets into or onto our plates or school lunch trays. Um, it's just amazing to see the amount of changes that you need to, need to make. So just to give you an example, um, on the school side, there are many, many schools across the country that don't have a kitchen facility at all. Um, school lunches are, you know, pre-packed and sent to the school uh, where there's a basic oven where the trays go in and trays come out, plastic peeled, oh. you know, served to the kids. And I mean, that's that's still a reality, Alex. Um, and and so when you don't have a kitchen facility, or when you're when you're kind of doing this in a almost like a closet size, you know, space where there's an oven and then you, you know, you put it in and you get it out and peel the plastic and serve it. How do you expect, um, how do you expect schools to make change? Because if you want to, if your objective is to serve fresh fruits and vegetables and, and food that is, you know, prepared from scratch, then you really need to be investing in infrastructure as well as investing in skill development and training for the food service workers um, at the school level, because many of them, don't know how to cook either because they've never done it. Um, you know, as as children themselves, you know, they've grown up in a in an environment where they themselves don't know how to peel a carrot. And so, it is really about sort of changing a culture at the school level, but it's also investing in you know buying equipment and creating a kitchen and you know training food service directors and food service kitchen staff to be able to prepare, um, you know, just prepare and process these things that come from the, you know, from the garden or from the farm, even for, I will say, even for schools that have kitchen facilities, um, you know, where they may, may have space to do all this stuff and, and scratch cooking, the skills are lacking, um, especially for product that comes from fresh from the farm. It doesn't look like 
the packets that you get from the grocery stores. You and might it doesn't fit into those kind of templated trays where they warm them up too. Exactly, exactly. So it, you know, carrots will have, uh, it will have dirt on it and will have the tops on it. And so, well, you, know, you can pick up, pick up the carrot bunch and, you know, just stare at it or you And have all that dirt fall to the ground, right? <laughs> exactly. So you need to wash it. You need to prep it. You need to, you know, chop it into the right sizes for kids to eat. So there's a lot that goes into, you know, into preparing a food, preparing a meal, as we all know, who, you know, who cook at home um, on a regular basis. Uh, but that sort of, you know, that sort of training is absolutely essential um, on, the, on the school end of it. On the farm end of it as well, you know, farmers, um, uh, farmers, the small and medium-sized farmers that we are talking about are, are mostly selling to farmers markets or CSAs and institutional sales are a whole different game. You know, they need to and be there's a aware. lot of barriers to get into that market. Absolutely. And the barriers are because there are a lot of specifications in terms of what schools want and in the format that they want. So does the school want, I keep going back to carrots, but does the school want carrot sticks or carrot coins or, you know, diced carrots to, you know, do some cooking with it? Um, It really depends on that school, you know, in your community. And And it probably changes by different school within your community as well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And so having a conversation with, you know, uh, a, a sales conversation essentially to figure out what are your specifications, how do you need it, in what format do you need it bagged in you know five pound bags or do you need it you know in smaller size packages, um, and when do you need it and how much do you need it? You know that's it's it's a relationship, it's a sales relationship, and farmers um, I've found um, you know really need to need to have that conversation with school buyers. Um, school district buyers to find out what the need is. And we found that when you get them face to face, you know, and they are talking the same language, then, you know, miracles can happen where lots of deals get done and, and farmers start selling to, um, to schools. Um, so this is just, you know, this is, <laughs> this is at the level of the individual farmer. Let's go back to working with these local farmers because there's a lot of different unique benefits to having it sourced locally. Not only are you helping your local farmers and that economy, you're also giving students the most fresh produce that they have as option for. And this is also, from the school standpoint, I mean, that's a big budget that you're kind of really reinvesting back into the community. What are some of these other benefits that really driving the schools to source locally have? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the, the the single most benefit is that farmers are finding uh, an alternative market, an institutional market um, that they can sell into. And um, once they've cracked, I have to say the school food um, service market or the school food market is the hardest not to crack. Just the number of specifications and regulations that um, that school food operates in, in is, you know, is mind-boggling. I can only imagine all the red tape that you have to kind of navigate through to even have the conversation. Right, exactly. And so if you, if a farmer has been able to, you know, crack the school food code, let's say, then, you know, it's so much easier to, you know, go to a hospital or go to a college where the price point is not such a, such a barrier, um, you know, in terms of what um, the institution can buy or even go to corporate cafeterias. I mean, I think, you know, there's lots of opportunities for institutional um, institutions that want to buy from from local farmers that they can tap into, 
Additionally, you'd be surprised, Alex, that many farmers that I've spoken to are, you know, are, uh, are engaged in farm to school um, because of the economic benefits of it, but also very interesting, I find that many of them say that they so much value the educational um, aspects of it. So, you know, when a farmer is invited into a school to talk to kids about his farm and, um, and the types of product that he grows, or when kids visit uh, the farmer on a farm tour, those are the kinds of, you know, one-on-one interactions with kids and having a chance to uh, engage children in, you know, in the business of farming and agriculture is something that farmers, I think, find, you know, um, from the heart, I think, find really uh, valuable and, and fee- they feel that they are really contributing to the um, to the way kids are thinking about farming and agriculture as an occupation. I love that you kind of brought that full circle. Not only are you just bringing together people for conversations to let innovation and really exciting measures happen, but you're also engaging farmers kind of roots of the community, bringing kids out to the farm and really pushing this education aspect. And so that was a perfect segue because how do you get kids all of a sudden to go from, I don't even know what kale is and I've never seen it to every single person at my table now has to have some of my kale. Right. Absolutely. Um, You know, education is, you know, paramount to getting kids um, excited about food. So a couple of ways that education um, can happen. Um, the first one being taste tests. Nothing <laughs> is better than taste tests. You know, before something is served in the cafeteria, we encourage schools to do taste tests. So if you're serving um, spinach, let's say, um, in the cafeteria, you know that you're going to serve spinach next month. Um, on the cafeteria menu, start with, you know, start with taste tests and, um, you know, do fresh spinach and do, you know, um, spinach salad and do, you know, different <laughs> varieties of spinach. Get the kids, get the kids to taste the spinach. Even better, get the kids to make something out of it. So, you know, get them cooking and, you know, get them to chop the spinach and feel it in their hands and taste it and, you know, look at the color. And That must be so much fun to watch. I mean, just it thinking of some of the schools you guys go into, it's probably likely that some kids have never seen some of the food that you bring in. Right, right. Many kids do not have not seen, you know, the food that um, that is that is uh, being brought into through taste tests. And uh, I was I was just reading reading something from a project that we are involved in. Um, uh, and we were just getting some, you know, quotes from from um, from schools and. I have to share this with you. So this is a quote from from a first grader who, you know, who has been involved in farm to school because of some work that we've been doing. And um, and the first grader writes a letter um, asking for turnips for Christmas. Turnips. Yeah, because he he was involved in a taste test. And then the only thing that he asked for his birthday was. Uh, he asked for a garden. So, you know, that just, I mean, touches your heart. I mean, this is, this is a child that has been transformed, I would say, in terms of, you know, the kinds of things that, um, that are impacting him. I don't know what Uh, my parents would have said if I asked for turnips. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. I mean, it's, it's amazing. You hear, I hear stories all the time about, you know, kids uh, asking their parents to buy bell peppers because they grew bell peppers in the garden. 
Oh. And, um, you know, gardens, having gardens, I will say, you know, that's perhaps a good segue into gardening. Yeah, no, it actually is. Because that was definitely one of the really cool initiatives that you guys have are those school gardens. Right. I mean, gardens are an excellent opportunity to get kids um, excited about food because just the process of, you know, planting a seed and seeing it grow and nurture it and then, you know, harvest it and eat it is amazing. It does wonders to uh, wonders to the child. There are opportunities to teach all kinds of things, you know, math, um, you know, teach, talk about science. But also I think gardens are um, gardens are uh, an excellent opportunity for kids to learn about teamwork and learn social skills. And as as a child is growing, you know, something in the garden, I mean, they're proud of what they've grown. And, and it's so a lot it, of work sometimes to get those things to grow. I mean, it is not easy as it I look at easy. some of my dead plants in my kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not easy to grow, you know, grow food. And uh, I think it just uh, gardening just gives children the opportunity to understand that, you know, it is a hard thing to grow food. And, you know, you talk about, you know, giving them a lesson about not wasting food because it's hard work to to grow food. And that's huge. Um, that is a big is lesson huge. right there. Right. I mean, gardens are a great opportunity for teaching kids about anything, really take a subject and you can, you know, you can use gardens or you can use food as a as a teaching medium for any subject, art, science, language arts. Oh yeah, you um, take the potato and then you get to like dip it in paint and make those paint posters. Or maybe oh, I was the only oh. one who got to do that. <laughs> love it, love it. No, I mean that's great. I mean, kids, kids make you know, kids make um, garden signs that are you know beautiful. Um, I can share some pictures with you. Oh please. Uh, they, yeah, they're just um, yeah, they're just amazing, and they, it's fascinating to see a child in a garden because it's like you know their eyes are just you know, popping out in wonder because there's, you know, there's wonder happening. I mean, nature is wonderful. It is. I have to share with you one of our earlier guests, Jonathan Zaidman from One to One Movement. Here in San Diego, a lot of times the ability for schools to have gardens is just super challenging. And so his really innovative solution was to buy a double-decker bus that actually was in commission in England at one point and is transforming that entire bus into a greenhouse to really connect with schools that don't have the option to have gardens on them. So the innovation and you can have in this space is pretty cool. Fantastic. And, you know, I, I, I totally agree. The innovation that you can, you can do in, in the space of teaching kids and gardening is amazing. Um, and the, the beauty about gardens or gardening as an, as an opportunity for, uh, for education to me is that it can be done anywhere. I mean, you really don't need a huge plot of land. I know schools that have, um, that have, you know, indoor, essentially potted plants that they're using, um, you know, mobile gardens, they call it, they move from it's a vertical garden. Um, It's a vertical system that moves from one, um, one classroom to another. uh, Very space efficient, too. Exactly. Very space efficient. And you can use it, you know, throughout the year, you know, if you're in parts of the country where you can't go out um, in in the winter. Or, I mean, you can have greenhouses. You know, there are schools that have built greenhouses so that this opportunity is not lacking in the winter months for kids. There are schools that have hydroponic systems that they've developed and, you know, are and aquaponics and, you know, are, are um, also, you know, cultivating fish as part of the 
process. Whoa, 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 whoa. Did you just say there are schools cultivating their own fish? Yes. Mm -hmm. Wow. What what state is this in? I've seen one in uh, in New Hampshire many many years back, but I've uh, I, I bet you know it's it's happening at other locations too. That's just mind blowing. I mean, I grew up in Idaho, so I was you know mentally checking off greenhouse you know options for the winter. Growing fish is not something that <laughs> I don't think was ever on my <laughs> academic agenda. But what a unique kind of biology lesson. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, again, you know, there are the the sky is the limit in terms of using food and and gardens as an educational opportunity. And the cool part of it is that because um, because we have the engagement of teachers all across the country, there are uh, you know, there are um, curriculum or there is curriculum available um, that meets you know state standards and meets the you know guidelines that teachers need to follow. Uh, and so there are lesson plans available that people can pick up um, and and run with that involve food as a as a tool for education. We've kind of gone through a couple of different of the really cool models, including the fish. What is another unique and just really innovative model that a school has implemented? Um, I think it is uh, it is a growing phenomena that I've seen where schools um, see the benefit in this in this work and as a result of the work in their community have um, have acquired or have found out that the school district has land available. So essentially, turning a piece of a piece of land that the school district has as a farm as a learning farm for kids and. It's something that I've I've um, I've seen happen in a couple of locations, and it's a growing phenomenon where school districts are invested in this so much that they, um, you know, they set aside or acquire land to serve as a as a school farm, essentially. Oh, that the ability to transform your schools into what at one point was a little bit of a barrier to really your driven stakeholders. I mean, that is just. Awesome, because when they're leading the education and they're helping lead this movement, it really opens doors. Right. One example that I can give you is from Detroit Public Schools, where Betty Wiggins, who is on our advisory board, is a fascinating story of how she's been able to, you know, acquire land from the school district and, you know, turn it into a huge, you know, gardening, farming space that is then being used for getting product into the school system and for education. Oh, incredible. Well, before we transition to some rapid fire, do you perhaps have a story of a child that was just really memorable, like that first grader asking for turnips that really, once you heard, you're just like, yes, I am doing (laughs) the right type of work. Right. So this is a funny story. Um, Those are the best. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, It's a a story where uh, I was just fascinated to hear that Kids in a classroom uh, were, you know, were um, were learning about, you know, dairy and dairy products, um, and really thought that milk and ice cream, you know, come from the from the grocery store. They could not, um, they could not believe. So there was a, you know, there was a setup made where um, there was a. Uh, a, a set a, a cow sort of set up you know a, a pseudo cow of, of course not a real cow but, <laughs> that would have been kind where, of interesting <laughs> where my kids had an opportunity to kind of you know milk the cow and and you know learn about how you know dairy production happens and 
they could not believe it that um, that milk does not come in a carton and that ice cream, you know, is not, you know, in the freezer. That it's not the origin of ice cream is not in the freezer aisle of the grocery store. Um, they just couldn't couldn't believe it. There, yeah, it was just like I mean, they, they almost arguments were happening in the classroom <laughs> where this was unbelievable. And then you know they actually saw how milk comes, and I think the teacher, um, you know, teacher kind of explain to them afterwards the process of you know milk production and then how milk can you know turn into lots of different different things cheese and um ice cream and you know yogurt and other things but yeah they just could not believe it that you're right that was absolutely hilarious and it also reminded me I have to admit, I mean, I grew up in Idaho and I know everyone out there thinks that because I grew up in Idaho, I lived on a farm and I had horses and I rode horses to school, which I didn't. I mean, we didn't have horses. But when I got to college, I actually did a volunteer project and I got to milk a cow and I was really excited. And so I can only imagine how excited these kids are to have this pseudo cow to really kind of explain where milk's coming from because milking a cow was, was a unique experience. Um, it's hard. It, it was. Hard. It was hard. Thank you. <laughs> I, I've tried it too. I grew up in India and um, you know worked in the dairy dairy industry uh, for a couple of years, uh, and I did get a chance to milk cows a couple of times. It is hard. You really have to develop a relationship with a cow to be able to successfully milk. Honestly, we're not going to talk about my success rate. <laughs> um. With that, I think we're going to transition to some rapid fire. Okay. The rapid fire is one of my all-time favorite parts of the show, and I think it's just because of those adventures we get to talk about, like shark diving. How many guests have we had that have gone shark diving? Absolutely incredible. But before we dive into that, I wanted to share a quick insight from this incredible event called Journey to Social Entrepreneurship, which was all about focusing in and channeling the power of service to fuel powerful social enterprises. So that insight was all about asking permission. Sometimes we wait too long to act, almost waiting for the world to give us the okay. K-Tekka founder describes a pivotal moment in his journey where he could either move forward or ask permission. If you're at a point in your life where you're ready to activate and you're ready to move forward, then this event is for you. Unlock all 20 recordings at journeytosocialentrepreneurship.com slash live. That includes some incredible founders like Three Twins Ice Cream, Cooley Cooley, Sponsor Change, My Ed Match, and more. And with that, I think we're ready for a dose of adventure. All right. Life is a balance of work, passion, and adventure. Can you tell us about a recent adventure excursion you've gone on? Um... I will talk about the um, a most recent trip that I did just a couple of weeks back over the Christmas holidays, um, where I visited India. Uh, India is where I grew up, and so the adventure wasn't so much about you know going to a new place, but um, really more about um, looking at it from a different perspective since I hadn't uh, visited for quite some time. And I realized that so much had changed, mostly for the better in terms of infrastructure and services. But I, I have to say, I was really saddened to see uh, kids eating a lot of American fast food and, you know, and eating it as, you know, considering it as a luxury. Um, you know, it's kind of really seen as pizza and, you know, hamburgers, um, really seen as luxury food and, you know, and the traditional Indian food, uh, not necessarily. So that was really sad. 
for me. That would be kind of heartbreaking, especially where you've made such incredible measures here to really rattle up and make healthy that food system. Many social entrepreneurs find solace in tranquility in the outdoors. Have you found this to be true or beneficial? True or beneficial in your work? I do. I, I love traveling and meeting people and exploring new places. Um, so I find you know I find solace and tranquility there. <laughs> I do like to garden. I wish I had more time to to do so myself. Uh, I have a couple of um, couple of sad stories on my end too that started something and haven't taken care of it but I do I do find solace in and calm um, and a lot of pleasure I find in cooking as well that's something that I I really do like yeah my poor basil plant is looking at me right now going what happened very sad (laughs) (laughs) can you describe a time when you were able to have boots on the ground and really see the impact of your work in action yeah um I will talk about a recent um recent initiative that we that we launched in in three states in Kentucky, Louisiana and Pennsylvania where we were providing support to school districts in the three states. We are providing support to school districts in the three states and um, and are really seeing that um, that schools and school districts are just so excited about the opportunity to engage in farm to school. Not that they were not aware of farm to school, but really needed that, you know, little push. To, to make it happen. And the turnip story that I shared with you is from those three states, it's from <laughs> one of those three states. And so that is just, you know, I find that just, you know, amazing um, that that is happening um, across the states. One of our, you know, one of the school districts that we, we worked with, so we provided mini grants to these school districts. And one of the applicants, um, you know, in the application process essentially told us, I don't really care if I don't get this grant because it was competitive, but I don't really care if I don't get this grant, but just the, the fact that this was available has got our community, has gotten our community um, engaged and excited about the options that we have in front of us because we asked them to write up, you know, a plan for what they would do. And, uh, you know, and so the, the story is really that the grantee or the applicant said that, um, that uh, I don't really care if I don't get this grant, I'd love to, but if I don't get this grant, I still have a basic uh, you know, foundation for, for this work to move forward because I have built a community uh, of engaged um, members in my community that can help me you know, accomplish this work even without the grant funding, which to me just says a lot about, about, about this work being community building and, you know, and engaging so many different people across the, con- across the community. And just facilitating those conversations around the topic. Yeah, exactly. You know, many times people are just not talking to each other and (laughs) you'd be surprised. Right. And now they're not only talking to each other, but they're also building community plans and really getting invested of the idea of changing up those food options. Right, right. Absolutely. And uh, we talk about... um, we, we talk about farm to school speed dating. Uh, <laughs> all right. All right. I got to know what the speed dating is. <laughs> yeah. So it really means, you know, getting a group of, you know, 20 farmers and 20 food service directors in a room and having them speed date and ask each other the questions about, you know, procurement of, you know, what size do you need? How much, quali- you know, how much quantity do you need? What product do you need? When do you need it? You know, where, how will you transport it to my site? Just ask the right questions. And then if it works, 
then you are in a relationship, <laughs> in a purchasing relationship. It is. It really is speed dating. You know, here are my standards. Here are your standards. Here's what I'm looking for in the relationship. Is this going to work? Yep. Let's date. <laughs> that must have been great fun to tell all these farmers you were bringing them to a speed dating event. <laughs> yeah, I got some eye rolling. <laughs> a couple of the single ones might have been a little disappointed. <laughs> Actually, can I tell you another story? Sure. Go for it. You have some really good ones. So um, this is a story from uh, from Georgia, where uh, Donna Martin, a food service director in, in uh, rural Georgia, shared this story with me, and I'm sharing it with you. She said that um, she started doing something called Harvest of the Month, where they would um, they would feature uh, a particular product during the month, and you know teach kids about it, taste test about you know about taste test with it. And then also serve it in the cafeteria, and um, she did it for a couple of months. And then, in a in a in a couple of months' time, she got a call from the grocery store, from the local grocery store, who requested of her that listen, if you are planning to do this on a regular basis, can you give us your um, your schedule of what you're going to be featuring in which month? Because when you feature it, our grocery store aisles are, you know, we have a shortage because kids are telling their parents about it and parents are then coming and buying it and so if you could give us a little bit of advance notice we would really appreciate that i love it <laughs> if that's not a huge win i don't know what is right that's just i mean it just uh, it's something that's stuck in my brain uh that i just had to share that it's just it again means that this is not just about to me it means that it is making an impact in ki kids lives but also parents are learning about it and our, you know, families are making some changes in their lifestyles, which is, you know, which is fantastic. And it's that totally subtle thing that you can be very intentional about when you teach kids and they take it home. I know when we connected with One to One Movement, you know, they would teach kids about saving energy and conserving trash. And then they'd get calls from parents going, what did you do to my child? They're disrupting my entire household. And it just is. I mean, when you instigate and really activate these kids, Incredible things can happen, not just at school, but at home as well. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I, I recently, we were, I was chatting with somebody who said that the, you know, the healthy eating um, movement is, is sort of really modeling the recycling movement that happened a couple of years back where kids were a major part of the change you know, in, in almost like shaming your parents or community if you're not doing it. You know, like That's kind of what happened with one-to-one -one movement. It kind of did. Right. It's, I mean, kids can be really persuasive, believe me. I have a 13-year-old and yes, I mean, yes, you know, our life falls around him. Exactly. Just a little persuasive, right? Yeah, not at all totally. borderline obnoxious. I totally give up, yeah. I was probably borderline obnoxious. Mom, if you're listening, I apologize. <laughs> A lot of times the life of an entrepreneur and especially someone kind of enchanting a nonprofit is a bit of a roller coaster. And there's a lot of moments where you have really great success and a couple of times when it's like, mm, that didn't work out. Can you tell us about a mistake, preferably your favorite mistake, where you guys for went forward with initiative and it just didn't work out? Hmm. Um, I think I, I will, I will fra frame it as really... Uh, a moment in time where you know a decision needed to be made, and it wasn't necessarily so much a right or a wrong decision, but it was probably right for for that time. 
and it was a learning i think it it continues to be a learning experience for me because you know it is still still valid so this is an example from when the national front school network was established we had um we had a lot of uh, a lot of partners across the country that we brought together probably about 50 organizations or so that really thought through the the nature of the work that the organization should do we gathered input from people across the country, whether something like this was needed or not. Uh, we didn't want to create anything that was not needed, obviously. Um, but we also talked about the scope of the organization. You know, should it should we be more expansive um, and, you know, go beyond the K to 12 school work that we, you know, that we that we started off with? Um, or should we be more focused um, and, you know, and really focus on on K to 12 because there are some concrete um, issues that need to be resolved in the school system? And I think my heart was at that time saying that we should be more expansive. Uh, and my head was saying that we should be more focused, um, <laughs> where, uh, you know, that, that it was more realistic to kind of, you know, take it bit by bit and, you know, do a small bit well. I have to say that I, I did not in my wildest dreams imagine that the K-12 work that we've done would expand so rapidly across the country. And so I think it would have been a different story um, if we had started expansive, Perhaps I don't know. I mean, it's yeah. I really don't know the answer. Maybe it was the right thing. Maybe it was not the right thing. But it was a decision that we made collaboratively, and you know, good things have come out of it. So I wouldn't really, I wouldn't really frame it as a mistake. But it was a moment in time where a direction was chosen, you know, by by a group of people, including myself. And um, I wonder, you know, what what would have been different if we had gone the other direction so essential to highlight that a lot of times when you come to that fork in the road, you really do have to make a decision. And that sometimes the other question is kind of lingering back there, but you got to move forward anyways. Yeah. A new and good things have come out of it. Oh, good. Yeah, quite a few. <laughs> I think it was uh, 42,000 good things. Yep. <laughs> Anu Pama, what role has mentorship played in your life? Big, really big. I've had, I've had... I've had a, I've surrounded myself with good people, I think, um, or they've surrounded um, them <laughs> with, with me. Um, but I think the the best ones, uh, the best mentorship that I've had um, have have been actually all of them, I think, and 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 as a result, they've been so good. Have let me, you know, have let me soar, be it with you know ideas or projects, you know, let me go and, you know, do what I've taught about, but really still at the same time watching my back and, you know, pulling me if there is something majorly wrong that's going to happen. Watch out, watch out, danger. <laughs> yeah, but I think, you know, giving you that, giving you that openness and opportunity to, you know, go soar and do the things that you believe in is, is you know, it's just an amazing opportunity to have uh, from a mentor opportunity to go and soar Whew, that was that was big <laughs> is there a mantra or a motto that guides forward your work with farm to school i think with the network and and i think in all this all the things that i i believe in and would do my mantra would be the sum of all of us is greater than any one of us Ooh. That really does exemplify what you guys are creating. Is there a book that you would recommend to other socially minded individuals? 
Um, let me let me tell you about what I'm reading right now. I'm going to take a trip to Kenya in a couple of weeks' time, and I'm reading about Kenya right now. I'm reading a book called My Maasai Life from a woman called Robin. Last name I'm going to mess up mess up entirely, but My Maasai Life is a story of Robin who. Um, who grew up in uh, suburban Illinois and um, took a trip to Kenya um, in her in her twenties, and that trip just changed her life. And um, since then, she's been involved in development work um, in Africa and in other countries across the across the globe. Um, so I'm reading that, and I'm finding it fascinating. You know, her learning is fascinating, and her sort of description of the 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 community that she lived in um, and what she learned from that is is resonating with me a lot and I'm, I'm learning a lot about this um, this community that I am going to go visit in a couple of weeks a huge adventure up on the horizon excited to see how that goes I'm looking forward to it too uh, it's going to be it's going to be fantastic we are going for a service learning project so we're going to be building a school uh, in this community. And I can't wait. I can't wait. Making a global impact. What is one tip that our listener can do today to make a positive impact in the world? From my perspective, as someone who's involved in farm to school, I will say connect with with the school in your community, connect and find out who the farmers are in your community or where you know your food is coming from and find out how you can um, help them um, you know be become become better farmers sell more healthy food how can you help you know how can you help a child um, in a school in your community and anupama how do our listeners find out more about the initiatives of farm to school in their area very easy um, just go to our website www.farmtoschool.org Click on our network, which has a map of the United States. Click on your state, and you shall see the smiling face of a national farm to school network, farm to school state lead. We have state leads in every state of the country and in Washington, D.C. Connect with that person um, to find out more information, but there's also more information about each state on that state page and lots and lots of resources on the website. So there is somebody out there through the National Farm to School Network who can who can and is willing to assist you in your efforts. You have been such an amazing, inspiring, and you know, just downright fun guest today. I really appreciate your time and thank you so much for joining. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Wow, what a knockout episode. I hope you guys enjoyed that in-depth look into the food at the school systems as much as I did. And I don't know about you, but I'm kind of curious to try turnips now. I don't know if I've even ever had one, but looks like I'll have to integrate that in so I can keep up with all the really cool kids at the elementary schools. As Anupama mentioned, we have some really amazing photos on our show notes page. Not only artwork, but kids on the ground in their communities really getting dirty in the gardens. Absolutely incredible. To check that out, head on over to positiveimpactpodcast.com slash farm to school. Hang out with us there and you're also going to get a free audio download, actually two, thanks to Audible, so you can grab a Messiah life. It sounds like you don't just have to be headed to Africa to enjoy such a compelling story. 
We've got a really cool guest lined up for Friday's Stories from the Field episode, so make sure to hang with us then, and you're going to get a deep insight into the grassroots, what this movement looks like in different cities around the world. Thank you so much for joining us today, and until next time, keep doing your part to make the world a better place. <laughs>